We are in the book Song of Songs. If you have a Bible, but actually, I would invite you to turn first of all to Hosea chapter 11. As we open this morning, I want to think about this, that the Bible often presents God to us as a God who draws people, woos them. Sometimes people are stubborn. I don't know if you know that. Um, And we Christians sit by the sidelines of somebody's life just saying to them, That's like the 50th time that God has given you grace. (laughs) When are you going to start realizing that you're not lucky, but God is being gracious to you? They're sinning left and right. They have no money. They have a looming bill and out of nowhere money shows up. Oh, lucky me. (laughs) They're mean and ungrateful to family pursuing them. And then when evicted from their house for the umpteenth time, they're invited by their family. Oh, well, I guess not being phased by the love showing them, shown to them. See, God draws rebel people. God also draws religious people like me. And I may not be stubborn, but I can still be ignorant. (laughs) I have a, a house, an income, a family, possessions, and relative ease in my life. Like I'm not worried about where my next meal will come. But I'm worried about when my next Amazon package is going to arrive. (laughs) God's abundantly gracious. And He's given me all these things. I invite you to stand for a few verses in Hosea chapter 11. Again, we will be in Song of Songs, but let's read this to get us thinking about today's theme. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, and even as Israel was leaving them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to the idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords. Other versions of the Bible would say here, I drew them with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke From their jaws, I bent down to give them food. Let's pray. Father, we see a picture of you in the Bible over and over again, who is extremely gracious and loving, forgiving. Even while people are sinning against you, you draw them with love. You forgive them over and over. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the sinful. Father, your word tells us that we husbands are to love like you love. That's a tall order. But we ask for the grace to do so. Father, we pray that as we unpack Song of Songs, that you would be speaking to our hearts, mending old wounds, healing relationships, and showing us how to love and be loved. We pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. We ask this in Jesus' name, who saved us from our sins, and for him we thank. For, and we thank, this, we thank him for this. There we go. <laughs> Amen. You may be seated. 
story of Hosea, for those who don't know, is the story of a prophet who was told by God to marry a harlot. Not an inviting calling. (laughs) Not a calling that I think I'd consider that was first given to me by God. (laughs) The confusion for Hosea had to be close to the confusion Abram felt when he was instructed to take Isaac to sacrifice him. I mean, actively seeking a sexual sinner for marriage doesn't seem like something Yahweh would lay on the heart of one of His holy people. The reason for this is for Hosea to exemplify the part of God, pure, righteous husband, and then Gomer, his harlot wife, to exemplify Israel. We never really hear if Hosea's love had any effect on Gomer. And perhaps the ambiguity for is for us. Will God's love have any effect on us? God says in this passage we read that He was the one who knew Israel in her youth. You know the story of Israel. They, they go in as 70 people or so into Egypt and 400 years later they came out the size of a country. And rather quickly, coming out of Egypt, they're already unfaithful to God. (laughs) Although they've been given His law. Even so, God continues to pursue them in love. He continues to draw them. He goes so far as to woo them. Do you feel that? I I could give you, like I give God... On account of my sins. Many of them heinous. The least of them in my mind. So offensive to God that He had to become flesh to have that flesh ripped and blood poured out. Even so, He draws me. Isn't that like setting down food for a ravenous wolf? I really want you as my own, even though you bite my hand over and over. God draws His people. And if God, pure God, draws His people, a sinful people, we ought to be drawing each other. In the platonic sense, being gracious to people even when they sin against us, but also where we might encounter the sins of another person in marriage. We should still draw each other. Here's the scene in Song of Songs. Newly married, likely the day of the wedding, if you will. However, proverbial weddings in that day were a week, so maybe the first day of celebration. The first day these two are married, and because that evening is going to be a proverbial wedding night with what happens on wedding nights, They're in the palace. Apparently, the ceremony for that day, at least, as I said, in that culture, wedding ceremonies are about a week. But maybe the the, the ceremonies of the first day are over. And the bride is just gushing. Like most brides on their wedding day. It's heaven on earth, right? In the Hebrew culture, when books are written, who has the first word is very important. It establishes who the main character is. So not only is the bride the main character, but look at what she's saying. 
Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. A few things. First of all, if the bride was the first person to talk, did you expect her to be saying this? <laughs> Rather forward. <laughs> she's, she's taken the initiative here. Just saying, it's biblical, ladies. In Hebrew culture... <laughs> Celebrations could be referred to sometimes singularly as wine. Just as we might use dinner, Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, Easter dinner, or just dinner. So wine was sometimes used generically as a celebratory feast. If you said wine, whatever the nearest celebratory feast, you might think that. So she's saying, I'm, um, so when she says your caresses are more delightful than wine, she's saying, I'm kind of done with the celebration of the wedding. <laughs> Hence, verse 4, Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Just another insert. Obviously, if you wait like the Bible tells you to wait to live together and get married and then consummate it, there's some understandable angst that has been building, which is good. It's meant to be that way. I also think verse 3 deserves a little bit of pondering. Like our day and age, men in that day were cologne. <laughs> Beards were often scented. No wonder young woman adore you is not to be taken jealously. Rather, it's a literary function to let us know that though the bride is fawning after the king, she's not blinded by love or dazed by it. Rather, she's made a good choice and so do all the ladies think so. Now, the king here, I'm assuming uh, Solomon, was a good choice. The proverbial tallies were in. Everybody agreed. You got a good man. Not just because he's king, but it's a character quality thing. And so, in verse 4, we have the desire of the bride to be taken, uh, to take her husband into his chambers. We hear the well wishes of the chorus. It's a good thing. God created it. But actually, I also wanted to look at this word, bring me. That is also draw. That's what other translations have, is draw me. Now, this is true literally with what's happening there, but also, I think, more broadly, too. Women like to be drawn, right? I, I didn't call Christy, who I hardly talked to since high school, and just flat out say, so you want to start going out on dates? <laughs> um, actually, I talked to her on Facebook. I asked her to meet me for coffee. We continued meeting with uh, a continued meeting at events, I drew her. In our story here in Song of Songs, after the bride wants Solomon to draw her in, we kind of switch scenes to see some reality start settling in. We know that there's this season of euphoria for relationships where if you're pharisaical like me, sometimes you think back on and wonder if sin might have been involved because all you think about is them, 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 and you're on cloud nine. <laughs> There's nothing and there's nobody else in the world. Well, for the first time in the story that the topic shifts from gushing over the other person and impassioned pleas of love to where the bride starts considering herself. She says, 
It is only right they adore you, daughters of Jerusalem. I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Now, I read some, I read in one of my commentaries and realized that some things never change. Some people were upset with this passage because she thought, they thought she was being racist. She's upset because she's dark. Really? Come on. The culture has really shifted. In our day and age, tan and dark is better, right? It's why there are tanning salons. There are cultural invitations to go to the beach because that's apparently where good-looking women are. In that day and age, tan meant you were outside working, (laughs) which meant you were of low wealth status. You were a peasant. You had to work. White and pale was in. (laughs) Apparently, it was not only physically attractive, but attractive for wealth reasons. So the bride is saying, it's only right they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, maybe like ladies in waiting, I don't know. But wealthy, generic daughters of Jerusalem. But as for her, she is dark, yet lovely. Now, the prophet Jeremiah mentions Kedar in his book. But what's more important here is not the tribe or the city, but just the custom. In which many nomadic tribes, like Kedar, made their tents out of black goat hair. (laughs) Supposedly was Solomon's... Uh, tapestries as well. She says her skin is darkened by days of working out in the vineyard. That was her job. But then she uses the word symbolically right after by saying because of her laboring out in the vineyard, she hasn't taken care of her own. And in fact, a lot of imagery referring to the body and parts of the body are going to be symbolic terms throughout the remainder of the book. And I like what one of my commentaries says, and that is, can you imagine if this book was all written in just medical terminology? I mean, this isn't too embarrassing to, to read. I, I tended to my own, I haven't tended to my own body for beauty reasons because I've been too busy working. <laughs> but even that right there just doesn't sound as good and exciting on the ears as my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. And so the point is, is why not straightforward medical terminology? I think because the subject matter deserves the language it's received. (laughs) Married love is a beautiful thing. It's mysterious and it's altogether good. Furthermore, the language and symbolism is more for explanatory reasons and for the reader's benefit and less for each character's enjoyment. So I don't know, but I don't think if a gal in that day were to hear that her neck was like the Tower of David, she would probably be just as confused as we were. <laughs> uh, what does it mean for the reader, though? We'll get to that later in, a ch- in our later chapter. Also subtly introduced is this slight lament, if you will, from the bride worrying about her appearance. Some things never change. <laughs> in fact, that the bride also has a home. This is introduced. She Sure, she's painted a bit in a negative light. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to work. The brother's character will be redeemed by the end of the story. But the fact of her home and her upbringing is going to cause some problems later on. There's a little foreshadow for you. 
Then we have a second plot device introduced, and that's going to be cause problems. Tell me, says the bride, you whom I love, to Solomon, her husband, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? So she's making plans with Solomon here. The bride is at home in the palace, and she's asking Solomon, where are you working, and when do you get a break? Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Lunchtime, right? Now, some of you are like, why didn't she just ask that? <laughs> why, did, why did it have to be cryptic? <laughs> you ever read Shakespeare? Oh, yeah. To be or not to be, that is the question. Sounds a lot more better and a lot more worth reading than, than should I kill myself? <laughs> just saying. The subject matter here deserves it. She's wondering where her husband's at. Why should I be like one who veils herself? That's what harlots do. They veil themselves on the street beside the flocks of your companion. She's asking, so are you so far out of reach, king of Israel, that I need to come and find you like a prostitute walking the streets? And then she includes that by beside the flocks of your companions. It's almost in a guilt inducing sort of way manipulation. It's in the Bible. But not only will I have to veil myself because she's the queen of Israel. You don't just go out in front of everybody. Um, but also it would let Solomon's friends know that Solomon hadn't made any arrangements. So she's kind of putting some peer pressure on him. But he has made arrangements, and that's the point of verse 8. If you have a commentary and you've been following along, I made a change from my study guide. In my study guide, I, I followed one of the primary commentaries, but upon closer examination in my sermon prep, and reading some other commentaries, I'm inclined to believe that the man Solomon is responding here and not the chorus. And Solomon says, If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. He's being playful. First of all, he's being a flatterer. He said, most beautiful of women. Men, that's also biblical. Talk to your spouse more than just about what you want to eat. Just saying. And then he tells her to follow the tracks of the flock. Apparently the flock that he'll be tending to, the one she referred to in verse 7, with her own, quote, workforce, if you will, for a rendezvous. And some would say that the pastoral imagery may suggest that it would be a romantic rendezvous. And this would be the point here. Everyone is busy. I mean, the king of Israel is very busy, of course, but everyone is busy. And do you, like these two, not only take time, but do it playfully? It's not a chore for Solomon and his bride to find time together. They want to be together. Solomon, no doubt, probably the busiest person in his kingdom, and he's not laboring to make time for his wife. He's doing so playfully. In any relationship, I think this should be priority. I came across an unwritten rule, apparently in some Amish communities, and that rule is this. When a neighbor shows up unannounced, which would be the case in communities where phones, texting, emails, and the like aren't used that much, it's expected, not begrudgingly, but just by custom, it's expected to drop everything and receive those visitors and visit. People are more important than what you're doing at the home. And in your relationship, your romantic relationship, the spouse is more important. 
There's give and take here too. We hear in the bride's words, should I have to come out like a harlot to find you? That, that she's settling with the change of having her loved one being in such a busy position. Maybe we likely remember in, in young love that desire of wanting to spend every waking moment with your loved one, but then this is life change. This is adapting. See, we have preconceived ideas when we come to the marriage. And sometimes those ideas, if not most of them, are shattered, <laughs> changed, altered. But it's give and take. It's not that Solomon is selfish and goes about life unchanged. I didn't give up my time before. I don't need to now. And it's not that the bride is selfish, staying home all day, but they make time. And when both Solomon and the bride are home together, they make their home paradise. The scene shifts again in the reading, and we are likely at home in the palace, likely in the banquet hall. They're having dinner. Probably alone is the idea. Solomon is speaking. He says, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, I, broke this, I brought this up last week. Some look at the verse and see it as a possible reference that the bride is none other than Pharaoh's daughter that Solomon married. We see Solomon did that in 1 Kings 3, 1, to make an alliance with Egypt. Some say he brings up Pharaoh for that reason. I don't know. But the idea of the saying here is that she's one in a million. And she is a mare, the only female horse in an ar army of male horses. In other words, you're turning heads, babe. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. I don't know why they didn't put that in there. Anyways, <laughs> your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you accented with silver, says the king. The application today, men, Valentine's Day is coming up. Buy her some jewelry. You're welcome. The bride responds in verse 12, while the king is on his couch, the word here is not couch in the den or living room, but the word for, is this the kind of the couch that people reclined on in those days to eat their meal. That's why some translations say, while the king was at his table, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. I mentioned this in the study guides, but one of the ancient forms of, of ladies perfuming oneself was to have this sachet of myrrh worn around their necks for the night. And then after a while, after it being there, the fragrance stays. They'd walk around the next day smelling like it. Secondly, in Getty. Here's a nice picture of the waterfalls there. But it's more than that. It's kind of an oasis in the middle of the desert. So it's a welcome refreshment. It's our symbolic paradise. Now we see the connection then. The one I love. It's like a sachet of myrrh perfume that usually scents around my neck. That's his Engedi. I'll just let you think about that. Come up with your own conclusions. And so they move to the bedroom. They exchange flatteries again. And I tend to, to think that they aren't overusing flattery for one another. We just commonly underuse it <laughs> in our relationships. Just saying. Before we move on, I want to use this idea of Engedi as a launching pad. She talked about where his Engedi is in the marital love sense, but I think something can be said about making home, period, Engedi. 
is home in Getty for you or your family? I've been convicted about this lately. Is home in Getty for my kids? Paradise. Does your tone of voice make it conducive to make and Getty home for your spouse? Does your conversation, does your schedules make home in Getty? Is home where you just lay your head and when you're home you're thinking about work and it shows? By the grace of God, I want to be a person that facilitates a home that my kids like, that my wife likes. I want home to be a paradise to return to from the desert of life. Not just another sand dune in the desert. You catch me? So the husband and bride retire to the bedroom. Lots of flattery. Take a hint. Copy that. In the middle of the flatteries, though, she brings up her self-image again. Again, a common thing among women we know. She says in Song 2.1, I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Of Sharon. Oh, <laughs> That's in some ways, in a less poetic way, sounding like, I'm a common dandelion on the front lawn. It's kind of what she's saying. She's saying she comes from humble upbringings. It's kind of a reference back to, I'm just a vineyard worker with sunburns to prove it. And she says this in taking of the extravagance of the palace they're in. She says this line, I love what the husband does. We need to pray for these sorts of eyes. See, there are two kinds of responses when people are self-demeaning. Because oftentimes, self-demeaning people are true. They're right, if we're honest. She was a common peasant. There probably was many girls like her, and probably many more girls commonly thought to be queen material. Here's what Solomon says to her, though. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young woman. See, Solomon the king is surrounded by the upper classes all the time. It's what makes you stand out, honey. <laughs> sure, I brought you up from the lower classes, but your character, who you are to me, make all the ladies I'm accustomed to pale in comparison. He didn't lie to her. He just sees it better than she sees it. When your spouse or your friend or anyone you know becomes aware of, of what they perceive to be flaws... How are those flaws redeemed to be their strengths? I can tell you this concerning your spouse. Pray for God's eyes to see those flaws become redeeming strengths. Because you're going to find flaws. Now don't hear me wrong. Solomon and the bride here are going to run into some sins. And relationships have sins. See, the only people who can make a marriage not work are the sinners involved. I hope that's uplifting. What's not happening here is the woman is saying, I have a drunkenness problem. And Solomon's saying, well, at least your life will always be oblivious and happy. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but sometimes people with issues, whether it be self-image issues or quirks, all it takes is to channeling to make that issue a strength and not a weakness. The lady's already said she's self-aware that she's a laborer from the lower class. It's, it's getting to her being in the palace and suddenly having the title queen and, and Solomon's found a way to recast it. Both are true. She could stick out like a sore thumb, but she also sticks out as her husband's unique one. He has a prize, not another young woman of the courts. His ability to recast the issue seems to bolster 
her self-image, bolster her confidence. And just like the opening lines of the book, uh, this bride is the aggressor. It's okay to be ladies. I'll let you read the following verses and take notes in your commentary. But we come to our study's end, and it's the first bookmark, if you will, in the Song of Songs at chapter 2, verse 7. After the bride expresses her desires for her husband on the marriage bed, she says this to the chorus, the third character of the work. It's likely an imaginary one. We're not supposed to take it all the time as somebody who's there, because that would be freaky. But it's a literary device, and he says, she says, Young woman of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Now, some say this, that instead of invoking God's name for an oath, I charge you in the name of Yahweh or whatever, she invokes some of the imagery of the book, lively and traditionally romantically provocative in nature, for an oath. And she's really making the statement to the hearers and to the readers, to us, to consider the appropriate time for the stuff they're talking about, namely married love on the wedding bed. At the end of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author seems to me, seems to be making some final exhortions or some final thoughts, maybe some things he he probably couldn't fit in the overarching theme of the letters, nevertheless he wanted to say. And he tells the Christians in Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Did you hear the order in that? Marriage is to be honored by all. If you want to be a romantic couple and do what romantic couples do, get married. <laughs> That's the point. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Do you hear that? There's two categories. Not just adulterers, but the sexually immoral. What does he mean by that? Well, the King James not in this passage, but in many other passages, would put down adulterers and then separately fornicators. <laughs> the, the latter refers to sex without being married, not honoring marriage, to use the language of Hebrews 13.4. God doesn't like that. God wants married people to enjoy this stuff. It's a sin that can be forgiven, but also if it has been a sin, it needs to be repented of. God's grace is never a license to sin. The bride says this line three times throughout the book. And I mentioned it last, last week that there's always context in reference to this warning. The first context here is the wedding night. We heard that her love for him is better than wine, better than the celebration they've had. She's expressed her upbringing and fears in relation to being the queen. He said, you're still my choice. You, you outshine all the young women of Israel. They've pursued each other. She's been introduced to the fact that he's going to be busy. They still need to find time in the busyness to keep the love alive, and they do. And in light of all this, who she is, a laborer, a lily of the valley, and who he is, the king, and busy, they've chosen each other, and they really do love each other. Folks intent on getting married need to have these things in mind before they get married. Who is he? <laughs> Not only... What man will a gal marry, but what man and what job, what life? Is this going to be okay? Men, why did you choose her? <laughs> why did you choose her? 
And once you have chosen, once it's done, it's done. (laughs) And that's okay. Some people hear this post-marriage and say, well, it's too late to make choices. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not too late to make chosen pursuits. Here's what I love about Song of Songs is is next week we're going to get a flashback of their courting days, if you will. But what we never hear is past possibilities of other potential spouses. We don't hear Solomon. We know Solomon from the rest of the Bible. But we don't hear him say in this book, Solomon really liked these gals in the harem. (laughs) Nor do we hear, and the bride was really hoping for the neighbor laborer, and after living in the stresses of the palace, she sought him out. No. My point is this, is that Song of Songs presents an ideal couple. And their eyes are only for each other. And when problems come up, they don't work through those problems by dwelling on past potential spouses or imagining life without each other. They work it out together. Because love is a chosen pursuit. She's an aggressor. She takes offense on the relationship, the romance. She she voices it, hey, I know you're busy. Make time for me. He's gracious. He's accommodating. He does more than just say, okay, I guess. He makes it fun. Love draws each other out and love is a chosen pursuit. And that's the love that God has for his people. We're all just dandelions in the front lawn. And God shows up, the king shows up and he says, I chose you. Now, don't get all Calvinist on me. I'm not saying predestination and stuff like that. But I choose you because to me, you're lilies among thorns. See, I'm constantly showing God my warts. He's constantly showing me his scars. Friends, if you're married, your spouse has warts. Don't know if you knew that. I exhort you to do what Jesus does and pursue them all the more. Warts and all. And the same goes for your spouse, right? They're pursuing you. And have you looked in the mirror lately? you got warts too. But Christ bears his scars for both of us, and by his grace, we can pursue each other. Let's pray. Father, you give us a tall order in the Bible that sometimes we get into the married relationship and we choose self-righteousness. We say, I've sacrificed so much and they don't even care. Lord Jesus, you have every right to say, I've sacrificed everything and they don't even care. Father, you still care for us. You still pursue us. You still love us. In the same way, we, we pray that you would give us the grace to be gracious. That you would give us the grace to lay down our weapons, to stop dwelling on their imperfections. Or to even stop hurting from our imperfections and not opening up to receive them. But rather that you would give us the grace to be forgiving, sacrificial, that we would begin pursuit instead of retreat. Father, that you've, for whatever reasons, spouses have come together, they're together now. Your desire is to make it flourish. And so I just pray that in the here and now that people would seek to forgive one another of past sins, of past hurts, and that people would stop pointing the finger and that people would start pursuing one another because it's what you do to us. Even while we are sinful and rebellious or religious, you still pursue us all the more. Help us to have a love like that. 
Father, we love you. We thank you. And we ask and we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.